to that city far beyond the sky. I have made my reservation for my home on high. My soul was born at Calvary by the Father's only Son. And he has my mention. The following is a production of Truth Exchange and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about Truth Exchange or how you can be a partner, please visit us online at truthexchange.com. I'm amazed to see so many here uh, on a Saturday morning. I know in Southern California there'd be all kinds of other things to do, though. So uh, maybe you're not as praiseworthy as uh, I think you are. What would you be doing in this cold weather? But anyway, um, it's good to see you here. And um, I'm excited to, to be among you. I, I do a few of these kinds of seminars. And they never are onerous to me. Um, because I'm constantly with Christians like you who are eager to understand the times. And if you think your weather's bad, two weeks ago I was in Thunder Bay, Ontario, where the closest uh, point that I knew north of there was uh, Hudson Bay. And the weather was really cold. But uh, there, a group of 700 people, concerned Christians, it was wonderful to see that. Well, uh, you know, if you don't know what's wrong, you can't fix it, right? If you don't know what's happening in the culture, how can you make a creditable Christian witness? I was talking in the foyer earlier, oh, by the way, I taught in uh, the Faculté Libre de Théologie Réformée d'Aix-en-Provence. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I have to work on this French because in a week's time, I will be teaching in that place in French. So after seven or eight years of not speaking French, I will be jumping in that uh, bath of a foreign language. So, but anyway, uh, I was speaking in the foyer with uh, one or two folks and uh, trying to describe the relationship between my first book and my second book because some of you have read the first book and not the sec second. And uh, I was saying that one of the important things is to broaden the focus, which I tried to do in the second book, from a narrow identification and analysis of what is the essence of the so-called New Age, which uh, can very easily be dismissed as a sort of a left coast cult that uh, has about the longevity of a hula hoop. And of course, many Christian colleges have dealt with the New Age in those terms by teaching the New Age as the most recent interesting weird sect. And so that's dealt with in a course on the sects. In my second book, though, I widen the picture and use a much broader lens to really do what I intended to do in the first book, but with a little more time at my disposal, to look at the whole culture, not so much in terms of that spearhead New Age thinking, but see that simply as the tip of an iceberg of what I believe is the revival of religious paganism in America. And so my goal 
with you is to attempt to identify what is religious paganism. Now just as uh, Christianity has its own logic, its own coherence, I want to challenge you to think with me in order to understand what is the logic, what is the coherence of what ultimately has to be described as the pagan lie, the Christian truth on the one hand and the pagan lie on the other. And of course for a lie to be good it has to at least propose itself as uh, consistent. Now ultimately lies are not consistent with themselves and people get tangled up finally when they start a whole process of lying. But there is a consistency uh, to paganism and I believe as thinking Christians as you are it is necessary that you be able to identify what is the essence of paganism. You know it is very frustrating, it is very um, debilitating to look around at what's happened in America and you know you turn to one issue and you try and put down this fire and oh, something's popped up over the other side and uh, you wonder yourself how can we deal with all these things and the other thing of course is that many of these agenda are attractive. They seem to have a most positive effect. And so it's important that we come to understand what is the subterranean relationship of all these agenda. So that's my goal really in this weekend seminar is to identify the coherence of the revival of paganism in Christian America. Of course, one more thing I want to say before I say anything else in terms of the lecture is that, and it's good news in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Things come over as if they're brand new and of course we're raised in a culture that's been brainwashed with the notion of evolution. And so we're constantly looking for the next evolutionary phase that will hopefully break through and produce what we all hoped would be produced that would solve all our problems. Because the Bible never speaks about things that way. It speaks about an original structure that God created which has been devolving ever since. And so we need to check our minds and be aware that we also have been raised in this kind of evolutionary culture so that what's new almost has to be good. At least it has to be tried out. But the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. And that, culture, that uh, conflict between the truth and the lie, of course, can be taken right back to the very beginning. God speaks the truth and Satan speaks the lie through the serpent. And from that time on, there has been a massive conflict of worldviews. God speaks the truth of worldview when he addresses Adam and Eve. The serpent twists that to pr promote his own worldview. Well now before I begin my lecture I want to prove to you that that's true, that there's nothing new under the sun by having you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, reading from verse 18 through 25. Give attention to the public reading of God's inspired word. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading, degrading of their bodies with one another. And here's the key verse. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Well, we're here to serve the Creator, who is forever praised. I don't know about you, but I happen to believe that the Christian gospel is in dire straits in Christian America. It's an odd statement to make, because just one generation ago, that would have made no sense at all. I think most people would have looked at me in total unbelief. America was the great Christian nation of the modern period, and in many ways, it still is. To be sure, the impression persists in many minds and on some levels that the nation remains firmly rooted in its Christian past. As an Englishman coming to the States uh, when I did in 1964 as a young student, I was impressed at how Christian America was. I can recall being on a double-decker bus in Liverpool, England, going to my own church, which was about a 20-minute ride, and uh, to alleviate the boredom, I would try to count the number of public houses I could see from the top of the bus. And virtually on every corner, there would be a public house, what we call pubs. When I came to the States, I didn't see any pubs. On the corners instead were churches. Just a visual symbol of what impressed me is how Christian America seemed. And it's true, there are vast networks of Christian colleges and schools, homeschooling groups, publishing houses, radio and television stations, unprecedented numbers of churches all conspiring to promote the idea that the soul of America really is in good shape. And of course, the polls couldn't be more encouraging. 97% of Americans believe in God. When you've worked in Europe, as I did, for 18 years, where nobody appears to believe in God, and you come to America and 97% of Americans believe in God, you think a revival is about to break out. Indeed, 90% believes that God loves them. 
Megachurches are bulging at the seams, and the president goes to church hugging a big fat Bible. And of course, the economy is booming. The Cold War is over, and America is the unique, undisputed world power exporting civil rights, democracy, and social justice to every corner of the planet. As the third millennium approaches, are we not entering the golden age of American civilization, which will one day be the civilization of the planet? Alas, there is another scenario. It's the one I've attempted to describe in the books I've written. It is this, that in one generation, an anti-Christian pagan religion has invaded Christian America, bled into homes on a daily basis, is the, network, is the network's message that the once Christian backbone of this nation now turns out to be its bigoted, lunatic fringe. How odd in one generation for the backbone to be sort of the little finger bone of the body politic. One small example perhaps uh, speaks volumes. I've been interested in reading about Dartmouth College, and perhaps some of you noted that. Founded in 1750 by Eliezer Wheelock, one of the great leaders of the first great awakening, with the express purpose of spreading, quote, the knowledge of the only true God and Savior and make it as extensive and common as possible. What a wonderful vision for a Christian school. Well, my forebears got in here too. George III gave Dartmouth its uh, first charter, granting uh, Dartmouth the royal rights to do what? For the civilizing and Christianizing of the children of pagans. In other words, to bring in uh, to this college all the American Indian children possible to Christianize them. As late as 1945, the then president of Dartmouth, a certain Ernest Hopkins, declared that Dartmouth, quote, is a Christian college founded for the Christianization of its students. Things have changed since then. In 1997, the present president, James Friedman, described the, these Christian origins as obnoxious. Ghosts of the past to be exercised from the institution's memory. And so ominously, Dartmouth, which was once the most prolific institutional provider of Christian missionaries, is now producing missionaries of another sort. And Dartmouth's present purpose seems to, be have, seems to have been turned on its head and the charter that now seems to be Dartmouth's is the paganizing of the children of Christians. But this uh, 
paganization, of course, that we see uh, in that statement by the present president, of course, only gives voice to what you and I know is the present chorus of voices in most academic institutions in America, in Hollywood, comes through the media, the state-run schools, much of present political ideology, because virtually all of the organs of social power are in the hands of a radical elite that has indeed bought the pagan thesis. But of course, it's not just the elite. It's odd that in spite of a consistent uh, bombardment of scandals around the present administration, that uh, the polls show that everyone is delighted with basically what's happening in America. I've read that one out of two pregnant American women get an abortion. I didn't realize it was that high. One out of two American women get an abortion. America leads the world in juvenile crime. America is the leader in the production and the sale of pornography in the entire world. I find that a fantastic notion. Having come to America, as I said, in 64 as a naive European and being amazed by how Christian America was. America is surely the leader in radical feminism, in its multi-layered, subtle attacks on the family. And it certainly is the leader in homosexual lobby power. The former ambassador to Switzerland, Faith Wittesley, says this, the United States is more socially radicalized on the issue of homosexuality than any other country in the world. That's a diplomat, a politician diplomat who represented America saying that just a few months ago. She sees in the present administration's intention of appointing an openly practicing homosexual as ambassador Luxem to Luxembourg as an attempt, quote, to get a precedent for bigger appointments. What the homosexual advocates are trying to do is use the diplomatic service to open up the way to change deeply held religious convictions and social mores in other countries. This ideological exportation via the diplomatic core is also going on, of course, as you know, for the exportation of radical feminism and abortion in league with the United Nations and international Planned Parenthood, which one could, I think, correctly describe as planned parental infanticide. But the odd thing is that this radical agenda, and this is what gives it so much power, is that it is bathed in a new morality and spirituality, which intends to draw together all the religions of the world to create a human utopia of unprecedented peace, freedom, and love. 
In other words, the pagan American missionaries reach for the whole planet. I want to develop that theme in my last lecture. So those of you who are interested in uh, that particular aspect of paganism, namely its uh, global and planetary reach, would want to take in that lecture. Well, how did we get where we are now? I think it's interesting to step back a moment and ask ourselves, well, if we're here now, how did we get here in such a short time? I was stimulated to do this kind of thinking because I came back here in 91, and in 92, uh, President Bill Clinton was elected to office. Now, what I'm going to say is not at all political. I uh, have never voted in my life, and that's only because I've never lived in my own country since 1964. And uh, I've lived in foreign countries, I've lived here, I've lived in France, and I've never had the occasion to vote. That's only a footnote. But um, I happen to think that the Republican Party is probably just as bad right now as the Democratic Party. And I'm not sure that voting in a whole crowd of Republicans will solve our problems. I hope I'm not standing on anyone's toes, but I do want to say that what I want to say now has nothing to do with, well, nothing, has rarely anything specific to do with politics, but what I want to look at is really the theological substratum. But I was impressed by the fact that uh, in 1992, the United States voted into the most powerful position on the earth a president who, as a young man, was a left-leaning student, had smoked pot, dodged the draft, and obviously adopted the 60s morality. And it seemed to me that what I had seen in America as I was a student, namely the hippie revolution, for I was a student during that period, now had gone to Washington the hippies had taken baths, cut their hair, moved into really nice digs in Washington, but had not changed their fundamental ideas. And so the flower power children of the 60s took political power in the 90s. And we all thought that the 60s revolution was a failure. We wondered what those weird, long-haired hippies could ever achieve as they stood on the outside of society, firing verbal insults and sometimes even weapons. And now we find that people like Tom Hayden, who was actually stockpiling guns, is a senator in California. In other words, the revolution did succeed. It sort of went underground. Someone has described this revolution or the, the uh, following period as the great march through the institutions. Now you remember Mao's great march across China where he finally was able to take over and make the whole of China communist. Now it's 
one speaks of the great march through the institutions as those intellectual radical hippies actually went into academia, joined some of the um, major organs of power in society, and slowly but surely, well not that slowly really, has changed the way we think. One sociologist in California describes this phenom phenomenon as the second coming of the 60s. When uh, Mr. and Mrs. Clinton walked into the White House, it was reported that they said, this is our time. And I began to wonder to myself, well, what do they mean by our? Well, our turns out to be, of course, a whole new morality, the typical 60s morality of anything goes sexuality, the appointment of 27 openly practicing homosexuals, the appointment of a number of people involved in drugs, either in their past or in their present, uh, the invitation to gurus, new age gurus, such as Marilyn Ferguson, who became one of Hillary Clinton's closest advisors for a period, and then Jean Houston, who uh, helped Hillary Clinton, well, they didn't use the word channel, though Jean Houston is a very well-known New Age channeler, I've heard her speak, uh, get in contact with Eleanor Roosevelt. And of course, Michael Lerner, who at the beginning of the administration was uh, a close advisor of the Clintons. Michael Lerner, a uh, Jewish rabbi who was head of the SDS in Berkeley in the 60s and has become a radical Jewish rabbi, got himself ordained <coughs> by a radical sect of Jews and is the editor of a magazine called Tikkun. A New Age mystic uh, Marilyn Ferguson says this about the 60s. As consciousness changes, the world changes. It seems to me that that 60s revolution, which looked like a failure, and there was no way, surely, that uh, those ideas could actually become government policy. But her comment is very interesting. As consciousness changes, the world changes. If you can change the way people think, then passing laws becomes a simple thing. And indeed, you see, in that 30-year or generation period, Americans have changed the way they think. What happened in the 60s? Is that I read a book by two of the leaders of the 60s revolution, Peter Collier David Horowitz, who wrote a book recently called uh, Destructive Generation. They were editors of Ramparts magazine. They were, one of them at least was a PhD student at Berkeley. Uh, 
David Horowitz is a Jew, was a Marxist, a radical leftist, and uh, as he stands back and uh, looks at what he and his generation achieved, his statement is destructive generation. Now there were some good things about the 60s. First of all, you remember it began as an attempt to gain free speech. And I think we can all hope that people be given freedom to speak. It uh, quickly took on uh, the case of racism, which was also a good thing. And I think some of the 60s revolutionaries were reacting against the hard-nosed right-wing uh, power that had been expressed in the 50s through the McCarthy kind of uh, right-wing political theories, with which perhaps the church unwittingly or wittingly sometimes allowed, ally, allied itself. And certainly the church's uh, um, reputation in terms of racism at that point was really black. And so there was something to react against. <clears throat> but quickly, you know, revolutions uh, become more and more radicalized. And from free speech and the just concern to wipe out racism, you got this uh, movement that wanted to eliminate pretty much everything in the society. And that's, I think, where we have to identify the destruction. Be sure to join us next week as we look at three rejections of the 60s. Never more to be discouraged, never more to roam. And on some happy morning, the dead in Christ shall rise. And I'll go to meet my Lord up yonder in the sky. God made a way, he has made a way on that crystal sea. He's coming back someday, he's gonna take me home to stay. I'll live forever back someday he's gonna take me home to stay i'll live forevermore all along that golden shore oh what a wonderful happy day god made a way